God, we thank you for this morning. And uh, God, I just confess, uh, Lord, my own need for you today. Lord, I acknowledge that there is no uh, illustration, no insightful explanation or pointed application that can transform any of us without you being at work. God, I feel that. I know that. And so, Lord, um, use me as a vessel over the next couple of moments for you just to speak through me, for you to take these words, and Lord, that you would drench them with your power, Lord, that your spirit will help us to see the greatness of Jesus in John chapter 18. Lord, that we might become better worshipers of him as we walk out of this place. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who don't know, uh, my acting career hit its apex at the age of 12 in a church play called Salty. Now, for those of you who know what Salty is, um, all you have to do is just hear that word Salty and you know exactly what my acting career was all about. But I I was in this play very insignificant role. I think I had like three lines, and yet I thought the whole play was about me, and like this whole play is dependent upon me. And, uh, and I had to have a couple people, including my parents, just kind of remind me, like, this isn't about you. Like, it's about, you know, salty. It's about being salt and light. And, and I just made it all about me. But there was a part in the play that I'll never forget that actually led me to my retirement. Um, one of my friends who was in the play also, we were kind of off to the side and we were talking and we, we probably shouldn't have been talking, but all of a sudden, like the auditorium gets dead quiet and we realize that someone is supposed to be on stage right now saying their lines. And it was my friend, it wasn't me, just to clear the air, I only had three lines, um, and he forgot to go out there. And we were like, we had that panic feeling. And all of a sudden we see the the director of the play who we were kind of scared of to begin with, starting to charge at us and like barking orders at my friend and papers are flying everywhere kind of a thing. And it really like made a a negative impact on me and the whole acting thing. I mean, already you're trying to act in front of, you know, lots of people and that was nerve wracking. But then you've got this director who's, you know, barking orders at you. I got to to the end of that. And that night I told my parents, I'm done. I'm hanging it up. I'm going to move on to other things. But I share that with you, um, not to confess, I think I missed my calling in life. But that picture of having kind of a frantic director in, in, in a play, it can be a temptation to think about God in that way, especially when you get to John chapter 18 in John's gospel. Like there's no other place in John's gospel that we're more tempted to think of God as this frantic, out of control director in the play called Life, whose characters within it, is starting, they're starting to go off script than what we see here in this passage. Now, we have the luxury of knowing how the story ends. Like we, most of us have read the end of John's gospel, but imagine reading this for the very first time. And you're kind of going through this and you're seeing the power of Jesus, Jesus's plan, his mission, and you're getting caught up in the son of God. And then you get to John 18 and it's like, whoa, like Judas all of a sudden betrays Jesus, brings this band of soldiers. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is falsely accused. He's put on an illegal trial. And then furthermore, one of Jesus's closest disciples, Peter, ends up denying him three times. Like it'd be very easy to conclude, what in the world is God doing right now? Like it feels like the wheels of this thing is starting to kind of come off. And it's easy to kind of conclude that God is up in heaven 
barking orders that why are these characters going off script? Now, the reality is, is that we can very much relate to Peter in this passage in particular, where we've had our own John 18 moments in life. Maybe you're in one right now where you're going through something and, and something's happening and you just can't understand what God is up to. You can't kind of piece things together about this particular circumstance and how it fits into God's sovereign plan. Well, you know better than I do, in those moments, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about who God is when you go through those kinds of seasons. And I think that's exactly what John 18 is, is trying to show us here. He's trying to show us more about who we are and more about who God is. And he does that by showing us this comparison between Jesus and Peter. And what we're going to see is how alike we are with Peter and how so unlike we are to Jesus. And so as we move through this, I'm just going to kind of almost move through this verse by verse, this narrative here, and I'm going to point out different characteristics of Jesus and Peter as far as the contrast. Here's the first thing I want to point out is we see Jesus's unwavering submission in what I'll call the garden of obedience. Our scene opens up here in verse 1, and we're told that Jesus takes his disciples to a garden. Now, I think this is very significant because all the other uh, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they specifically call it Gethsemane. That's the location here. But John just wants us to know it's a garden. Okay, now we know it's the Garden of Gethsemane, but I think John is, is using the language of a garden because he is deliberately comparing the Garden of Gethsemane with the Garden of Eden. We've seen John use kind of symbolism like that in almost every chapter throughout John's gospel. And I think he's doing that here with the aim to compare what Adam did in the Garden of Eden with what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me point out just a couple of comparisons. The first is that the first Adam in Genesis began life in a garden. And yet Jesus here, the second Adam, is coming to the end of his life to a garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. And yet in this Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus obeyed and overcame sin. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, Adam hid himself with fig leaves. But in Gethsemane, Jesus boldly presents himself on two different occasions to the Roman soldiers. So I think John here is showing us how Jesus is the greater Adam. And what Jesus is about to do is something that Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden. Now, John's done this all throughout his gospel. He has shown us how Jesus has come and has fulfilled something that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament was lacking. We've seen this throughout John's gospel that Jesus is the greater Abraham. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater temple or dwelling place of God. We've seen Jesus is the greater Israel. And now here, I think we see that Jesus is the greater Adam, who instead of disobeying God in the garden, Jesus will obey and submit to the Father in this garden. But it won't be without struggle. This is something that John doesn't include for us, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke does, is there's an awful lot that happens in between verses 1 and 2 of John 18. Matthew, Mark, and Luke fill in uh, the gap for us. What we know is that something happens with Jesus and the Father after verse 1 when they get to the garden and before verse 2 when Judas comes and arrests Jesus. 
Now, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke portray for us is that in that moment, in that gap, Jesus is deeply troubled. Jesus is sorrowful. Jesus even falls to the ground and he's sweating drops of blood. Now, this is important to know, even though John doesn't include it, it's important to know the magnitude of Jesus's obedience because it shows us why Jesus is qualified to make the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so we see Jesus, uh, thanks to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who is deeply sorrowful. And the reason for that is because Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. Okay, verse 4 um, shows us that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. All right, so Jesus is not out of control. Jesus is not that frantic director in the play called Life where people are going off script. Jesus is in control. Jesus knows what's about to happen, and yet he's filled with sorrow. Now, he's filled with sorrow not because of the pain he's about to experience on the cross. He's filled with sorrow not because of the shame, not because of his closest friends, the disciples, will actually walk away from him in just moments from here. Jesus is filled with sorrow because he's about to drink the cup from the Father. Verse 11 tells us this, that after Peter cuts off the ear of one of the servants, Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See, for Jesus in this moment, who's sweating drops of blood, there's something about the content of this cup that was completely overwhelming for Jesus. This cup was so horrible to drink that in Matthew's account, chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus falls on his face and he prays to the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus wants nothing to do with this cup. And the reason for that is because what's inside the cup, the substance, is the ingredients of God's wrath. It's, it's the shame and the sin of the whole world. It's the curse of the law. It's abandonment from the Father. This cup that Jesus is about to consume and probably has already started to consume is filled with, with the punishment for the sins of the world. This cup was something that you and I were to drink. This, this punishment here is for our rebellion, and yet we see Jesus starting to drink this cup in full that will climax on the cross at Calvary. And what we see here is that even though Jesus is sorrowful, even though he's tempted, unlike Adam who disobeyed God, we see Jesus perfectly submit and obey to the Father's will. He prays, Father, not my I will, but yours be done. And we see how Jesus is so unlike us. Now, this is important, again, because Jesus' obedience was a requirement for him to be the accepted atonement for our sins. That for God to look at a sacrifice for the sins of the world, that person had to be perfect, had to be blameless, had to be spotless. And Jesus meets that requirement in his perfect obedience and submission to him. So we see this kind of wrestling that Jesus has, and yet verse 2 comes... And Judas shows up. Now, John tells us that Ju Judas knew this garden. He knew this location well. This is probably an area where Jesus often went to pray or to rest with his disciples. But Judas doesn't show up alone. He shows up with a very interesting group of people here. 
the text tells us that he shows up with what's called a band of soldiers. Now, this would have been anywhere from 600 to 1,000 fully trained, fully armed soldiers. But not only that, but he brings with him some of the most powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem. And it's so interesting to me that these Jews and Gentiles, these soldiers and, and religious leaders who wanted nothing to do with each other, now are coming together because they have a common en enemy. And they come here and it's dark and they've got these lanterns, these lights, which is also kind of ironic because they're going to arrest the light of the world. And yet this scene here is hard to picture. In this garden, you've got almost a thousand people, some of the most powerful people in Jerusalem, and all eyes are on Jesus. This reminds me in a um, smaller way but similar way of an experience I had this spring. This spring, a couple of my friends from college who I played basketball with came to visit me and they stayed with me for the weekend. And it was a Saturday morning and we were trying to figure out what to do and you know, try to fill the time. And we found out that there was a basketball tournament that was taking place in uh, Westfield with some of the best high school basketball players in the country. I know I lead a very exciting life. Uh, we said, man, let's go do that. Look, that sounds fun. LeBron James' son was playing in it. And so we thought, oh man, like what if LeBron James was actually there? And so we get there and on the way, we found out that LeBron James was there and he was in this, this field house in, in Westfield. So we get there and we're like, man, how are we gonna find where LeBron James is? There's so many courts here. And we walked in and it was immediately obvious because there's this large sea of people just surrounding LeBron James. And so we go over there and we try to get as close as we can to him. And we got pretty close to him. And it was one of the most bizarre feelings to be surrounded by a human being. And there's all kinds of like awe and almost worship taking place at who LeBron James is. Like people are trying to get as close as they can and, and just, you know, smell him and, you know, what, what deodorant is he wearing? And, and it, was, it was kind of weird. And in fact, like LeBron like kind of turned this way to look and like the sea of people just like part of the Red Sea. Like as he moving, he's going to the bathroom, like what, what's he doing? And I think he's just checking the score or something. But it was astounding because like all of these eyes were on LeBron James. Like everybody was captivated by him. And I think when you get to this passage in John, and not to say that LeBron is, is Jesus by any means, I'm sure half the people in our church would leave. But that sense of like all of these people are focused on one individual. And not just some random people who gathered in Westfield. These are some of the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And they are captivated by Jesus and what he's about to do. In fact, what happens here is that Jesus initiates the conversation. He says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And all Jesus says is, I am he. And they draw back and they fall to the ground. It's an amazing scene here. These are trained soldiers who are taken aback about the greatness of Jesus. And I don't know if it was this sense of fear or, or awe or anticipation of what Jesus was going to do, maybe a combination of all those things. But here we get just a glimpse of what Jesus could do in all of his power. And so all eyes are on him. And scene one in our passage kind of comes to a close in verse 12 when they arrest the light of the world. Now, moving into scene number two here, it's going to move into the, the courtyard of the high priest. And here, Peter kind of enters the stage for us, and we see kind of a surprising downfall of Peter. Jesus is taken 
and he is put before kind of these three different trials in John chapter 18. The first one is with Annas. The second is with Caiaphas, who's the high priest, who's probably the most powerful person in Jerusalem. And then finally, he will stand before Pilate, which we'll look at next week. Now, what's really fascinating about what John does here is he weaves Peter's three denials in and through the first two of these three trials. And I think that's really interesting because I think John is intentionally showing this contrast between Jesus and Peter. I think he's trying to help us see very clearly how unlike we are to Jesus and how alike we are to Peter. That Jesus will stand up to his questioners and he will deny nothing. He will be open to them. And yet Peter, on the other hand, will cower before his questioners and he will deny everything. Now, this first trial of Annas is informal. It's not by the books whatsoever. They do not follow protocol. They, uh, in fact, accuse Jesus without having witnesses established. They question his teachings and his, his disciples. And then secondly, they actually strike Jesus in the face. This is illegal, and yet Jesus is calm, he's poised, and he's under control. He reminds them, look, I've not hidden anything from you. My teachings have been out in the open. And so what they do is they then send him to Caiaphas. Now during this, something very interesting happens with Peter. We know in verse 15 that Peter and this other disciple, who it's most likely John, the author of this gospel, and yet there's a small minority that think it's Nicodemus, but I believe it's John. So John and Peter go and they try to follow Jesus. And the text tells us that John was known by the high priest. So he was given permission to kind of see this first trial of Annas. And yet Peter is kind of outside of it. And at some point, there's this bizarre interaction that happens in verses 16 and 17 between John, Peter, and this slave girl who's watching and guarding the door. Like John goes back outside because he, he wants to grab Peter to go inside and yet has this interaction with the slave girl because the slave girl actually asks Peter, are you also one of his disciples? And Peter's response is so surprising here on so many different levels. He says, no, I am not. And it's surprising because of all the things that we've seen about Peter throughout John's gospel, but it's even more surprising because one of his best friends, John, is right there next to him. And not only that, but John is already known for being one of Jesus' disciples. He's known by the high priest. They know that he belongs to Jesus. And yet for some reason, Peter caves here in this moment and denies being a follower of Jesus. Instead of going in with Jesus, Peter is now on the outside and he's huddled around a fire trying to keep warm, surrounded by those who have rejected Jesus, the officers and the other slaves. Now, it gets much worse for Peter because during this trial, Peter is again still standing by the fire, already denied Jesus once, and yet standing there, he's asked again, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Aren't you one of his disciples and Peter, once again, denies even being with Jesus. It's an amazing turn of events. A, a disciple who's so bold, so full of vigor and faith, is now in the process of denying even being with Jesus. Well, it gets even worse than that, because he's even asked a third time if he knows Jesus. And this time, he's asked by a relative of the guy that he chopped the ear off back in the garden, 
Imagine that kind of interaction there. Like this, the, the servant's like, no, no, I recognized you in the garden. Like you were there. And Peter, yet again, denies Jesus for the third time. In Luke's account, it tells us that there was about an hour, that, uh, that hour gap that took place from the second denial from the third denial. Imagine Peter just kind of huddled around that fire, kind of rehearsing what he has said and, and what he has done. You have to imagine during that hour of just thinking about all the things that Jesus has shown him over the years, the compassion, and yet here he is thinking, man, I've denied him twice already. And you wonder if, if Peter was just resolved to just falling away because the third time, an hour later, he denies Jesus once again. Luke also in his account um, gives us the heartbreaking detail that precisely at that third denial, Peter's eyes meet Jesus's eyes across the courtyard. And in fact, I thought this was really interesting that Luke even uses this Greek word that's translated as gaze, which is the same word, same Greek word that John uses in John chapter 1, verse 42, when Jesus first gazed at Peter before calling Peter to be one of his disciples. It's almost like he's, he's kind of circling the loop and reminding us of what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. But this is a, a devastating moment for Peter. Mark's account tells us that upon this moment of denying him for the third time, Peter is reminded of Jesus' prediction that this was going to happen. And so as a result, Peter breaks down, he weeps, and he walks away. Now, fortunately, this is not the last scene that we have of Peter in John's gospel. We know that Jesus shows him a, an abundance of grace. He reinstates Peter. This is not even the last moment that we see of, of Peter throughout the New Testament. We know that Peter will, will go on and he'll write other uh, books of the Bible. And yet this is just so incredibly fascinating to take a character like Peter, who in this story we relate more to Peter than with Jesus, because Peter was, on the, he was in the inner circle of Jesus. He was one of those three disciples that Jesus kind of confided in more than the rest. In fact, Peter's name shows up more than any other name throughout the Gospels outside of Jesus' name. No one stands up more for Jesus than Peter throughout the Gospels, but no one is also rebuked more by Jesus than Peter. Peter is described as, as being hot-headed, yet being all in, being very committed. If you even consider what, what Peter told Jesus at the Last Supper, uh, when, when Jesus was kind of predicting that all this would happen, Peter just very boldly says to Jesus, even if everyone else falls away from you, Jesus, I will not. And yet we see that Peter does just that. So like Judas, it's just a fascinating character to think about what happened to Peter? What happened to his faith? Why did he crumble in this moment? And we know that Peter didn't have a, a firm understanding of Jesus' mission, that I think Peter even miscalculated his own role. I think he misjudged his, his surroundings here in the courtyard. But I think if we had Peter who, let's say he's standing right here with us this morning, and we, we were given the opportunity to do kind of a Q&A with Peter. I said, Peter, like, what would you have loved to have known or been reminded of in the Garden of Gethsemane to help you not fall away from Jesus in the courtyard? What, what would you say, Peter? I think Peter would tell us three things, and, and we'll close with this this morning. I think the first thing that Peter would tell us 
is he would remind us that God's sovereign purposes, though they're not always clear, they are always at work, always at work. See, as we've noted, God is not the powerless director of the play called Life with all of these characters going off script. No, we know that God is sovereign. God is in control. Jesus knew all things that were about to happen. But from Peter's vantage point, I think he would confess this this morning if he were with us, I think Peter was seriously doubting this reality. I think he was seriously doubting that Jesus was in control in the garden, that Jesus knew what he, was go- what, what he was supposed to do. And that's evidenced by the fact that Peter takes things into his own hands and cuts off the ear of one of the servants there. And what's interesting about that is that if Peter w- would have succeeded in, in what he intended to do here of killing all of these soldiers, he would have kept Jesus from the cross. Isn't it, like, even though he had these good intentions, Peter could not see God's purpose here in the garden. That for Peter, he felt like doing nothing was being unfaithful to Jesus. And look, we, we have these moments too in our own lives. Like we've got these Garden of Gethsemane moments where we're with God, we're walking with God, and something happens that we can't wrap our minds around of why God would allow this to happen. We might even wonder, is God really in control? I I can't see the purpose in this. And we can be tempted like Peter to wanna take things into our own hands and start to control the circumstances. That sometimes we run to sin or we make unwise decisions or we, we listen to our doubts. And I think it's in the foggiest seasons of life where we're unsure of what God is doing, that we can create the most damage in our relationship with God. And yet sometimes in those moments and in those seasons, what God wants us to do is just to wait upon him, just to wait upon the Lord. We hate that command, don't we? (laughs) Shows up 16 different times in the Bible. Wait upon the Lord and trust him. We hate that. I hate that command because I'm, I'm a doer. Like I want activity. I want to perform. I want to figure out what's the path. Give me clarity and I'll run. And, and I, I can see my own relationship with the Lord where you want me to wait and sit on this and just trust? God, do you know what you're doing? Do you know the right plan here? And, and when I do that in my own life, I take things into my own hands and try to control everything. It can lead me even to making unwise decisions. I just want to remind you this morning, if you feel like you're in this Garden of Gethsemane moment, just be reminded, even in the most confusing of moments, the most painful seasons, when God's purposes are not clear, they are at work. Think about Job, for instance, Job chapter 42, he reminds us of this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's Job who lost everything. Right? It went through intense times of suffering, had a, 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 a very personal Garden of Gethsemane season in his life, and yet he still declares that God's purposes will not be thwarted. But just remember that waiting upon God is not inactivity, but it is a demonstration of trust before him. It's a declaration that's saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know the why behind this. I don't know the purpose, but I know that you're good. I know that you're calling me to wait and trust upon you, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. 
that God does not waste faithful waiting. So in this Q&A with Peter this morning, that's the, I think that's the first thing he would tell us. The second thing, though, and this would take a lot of humility from Peter to admit, is he would warn us of good intentions in following Jesus. In fact, I'd probably go as far as to say that Peter, though he had good intentions of following Jesus until the end, he had to learn the hard truth about his sinful heart that good intentions alone are not enough. Remember Peter's bold declaration at the Last Supper, that did not produce a good outcome for Peter. That good intentions alone, without obedience, without faithful living, does not produce faithfulness. I think sometimes with good intentions, without obedience, without right living, it's usually rooted in self-assurance. That what happens when we have the best intentions, the, the, the best kind of motivations of doing what is right, and yet we don't do it, it's usually because our confidence for doing what's right is way higher than our actual obedience. Even our, our knowledge of what we know needs to be done in our own lives as it relates to obedience is sometimes higher than our actual faithfulness to Jesus. And I think this is a really dangerous place to be because having good intentions means you've got confidence that you know what to do and yet you don't do it. And it can become dangerous because along the way, we can even soothe our own consciences where we can say, yeah, I, I had the intention of doing what's right. I didn't do it, but hey, I, I meant well. Right? Like, or, or if you know what to do is right, and maybe you do something that's wrong, then we can soothe our consciences, let us off the hook by saying, but that's not what I intended. That, that wasn't my motives there. I, I meant this, even though we commit what's wrong. See, the danger here is that we can walk around with hearts that are filled with noble, good, righteous intentions that make us feel godlier than what we actually are. That these intentions in our hearts can kind of cloud our self-evaluation of our own, our own obedience to God. And it gets worse when we start to compare ourselves with other people. We say, yeah, I didn't obey that time. I had good intentions. But hey, at least I'm not like this guy. Like this person is, is way more disobedient than me. Like I, I think I'm okay. And it can create almost this spiritual facade that does not lead to true obedience. Now, thinking about Peter here, and I wonder if Peter was on stage with us, if he would say, hey, guys, do you remember that story when I was walking on water with Jesus? You remember when Jesus was walking while he calls me out there, and I was walking on water because my eyes were fixated on him? And I think Peter would ask us, do you know what happened when I started to sink? My focus wasn't on Jesus anymore. It was on my surroundings. It was on the waves and, and the wind. And, and that's exactly what I think is happening in John 18 with Peter is that he lost focus of Jesus and he started focusing on his own ability, maybe his own words of, no, no, I'm never gonna fall away from you, Jesus. And perhaps he put more confidence in his own strength than his own focus on Jesus and who he actually is. I think that's a, a warning for us this morning as we think about our own good intentions, our own desire to do what is right, to not put more confidence in our own ability, but to lean upon Jesus and who he actually is. I think of the words of, of James, who says in James chapter two, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you have vibrant, strong faith, 
that faith is never going to be alone. It's always going to have obedience accompanying it. And so if we want to be people who are not just filled with good intentions, but we're obedient people, then my challenge for us is to grow our faith and our trust in Jesus. The stronger the faith, the stronger the obedience. And we do that, I think, by soaking ourselves in the word of God, that we rehearse God's promises for us, that enables us to take what we know to be true and to actually live it out. I wonder if Peter would also admit to you, man, if I just, if I just rehearsed one promise of Jesus as I was surrounded by that charcoal fire with all those servants, I think I would have stayed faithful to Jesus. I wonder if, if he would have said, man, if I just would have remembered the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up in order for those to believe. I wonder if Peter would have said, oh, I would have, I would have remembered. This is part of his plan, and I need to trust in him. I think that helps us as we think about our good intentions locking hand in hand with our obedience. And then the third thing I would say as it relates to just application of this passage is just to be reminded that Jesus' obedience in the garden here actually makes possible our eternal position in the future garden in the new heavens and the new earth. We see this theme of garden really all throughout Scripture. We see it in Genesis chapter 2, obviously. We see it here in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's another garden, a future garden, that theologians call the new garden. It's in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of this river that's flowing all throughout the city is the tree of life. And the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is the new garden, kind of the redeemed garden that the people of God will get to enjoy in the presence of God forever and ever. That even though Adam, who disobeyed in the first garden, that because Jesus obeyed perfectly in the second garden, you and I and all who trust in Jesus for our salvation can have the confidence that we will be in the presence of God forever and ever in this future garden, in the new heavens and the new earth. I love this picture because in Revelation 22, it says that, that there will be no, no need for a sun, no light, because the glory of God will be our light as God reigns forever and ever. And he promises to take those who trust in Jesus with him. All because... We have Jesus in John 18, who declares, not my will, but your will be done. And he demonstrates this perfect submission and obedience to the Father. Furthermore, in just a couple hours, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. He'll be hanging on this first century Roman torture tool that was reserved for criminals. It was actually supposed to be something that you and I we're to experience, to pay for our own sins, and yet Jesus takes our place so that we might be forgiven. Look, as we close this morning, I just want to ask those of you who are not followers of Jesus today, I want you to just consider all that Jesus has done on your behalf in order to save you. 
that maybe you're here and, and you've heard about the, the gospel, you've heard about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, but do you also know all that Jesus went through to be obedient to the Father in order for his sacrifice to be accepted? If you're an unbeliever today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, know how much God loves you. Know that God has made a way for your sins to be forgiven. And if you're being kind of prompted in your own spirit by the Holy Spirit of God, and you're wondering, what do I need to do to be saved? Look, there, there's nothing fancy you need to do this morning. Just need to accept this eternal gift, this eternally free gift from God to declare your faith upon Jesus and to trust him for what he has done for you on the cross. Look, we love for you to do that. We're praying for you to do that today. In fact, I'd love to talk to you after the service if you have questions about that or if you'd want to pray to receive Jesus. But as we close, just be reminded of how great Jesus is, how unlike we are to him, and how alike we are to even Peter. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the obedience of Jesus that we see in this passage. We thank you for the magnificent, Lord, resolve he had to be faithful to your will. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that we can relate to even Peter in this passage. Lord, ways that we have denied you in our own lives through choosing sin. And God, we praise you that your grace is greater than our worst sins and our worst mistakes. We thank you that you've included Peter's story in the gospels because we know that you lavish grace upon Peter, that you forgive him, and that you use him to be this warrior for you in your kingdom. God, I pray for those who are in those moments right now where maybe they've denied you, maybe they're, they're living in sin, Lord, that you would remind them of your grace, that what you've done with Peter, you can do with us today. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name, amen.